Hello again, and welcome back to the Medicaid Leadership Exchange, a podcast series that explores priority topics with Medicaid leaders. My name is Diane Hasselman, and I am Deputy Executive Director at the National Association of Medicaid Directors, or NAMD. NAMD is excited to work on this podcast series with the Center for Healthcare Strategies. It is made possible by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. As we release new episodes of the podcast, we're continuing to feature conversations between Medicaid directors and sometimes members of their executive team. We're looking forward to our upcoming discussion, which we're organizing as a mini series, looking at a variety of leadership dynamics at play for directors and their senior teams as they work to address equity, both within their agencies and for their members. I'd like to introduce the moderator for today's session, Gretchen Hammer. Gretchen works with NAMD and states to provide strategic support and was the Medicaid director in Colorado. She has also served on the NAMD board of directors. With that, I'll turn it over to Gretchen to say a few words and to welcome today's conversation participants. Gretchen? Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us again for the Medicaid Leadership Exchange podcast. We are very excited today to continue our conversations about advancing health equity, and we're joined by a national expert, Takesha Everett, as well as two of our uh, very accomplished and esteemed Medicaid directors, Lisa Lee in Kentucky and Jim Jones in Wisconsin. Our goal today is to talk through how we enter into conversations about equity using agreed upon language. We know that one of the things that can prevent us from entering into conversations about equity is uncertainty about what language to use, concerns we might offend people, concerns we might say the wrong thing. And so in response to that, Takesha, with support from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, has created a language guide that can help Medicaid programs as well as all individuals and administrators interested in having conversations and advancing health equity to really understand what language means in this context, how to use the language in an active way, and what language, frankly, to sometimes avoid because it may be misinterpreted or it may not mean exactly what we think it means. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to, to, to Keisha to allow, herself, to allow her to introduce the language guide and tell us a little bit about her personal expertise in this area and how she imagines we could use the guide. Takesha? Thanks, Gretchen. I'm really excited to be here. And I have to admit that the guide was a collaborative effort from myself, Karen Siegel, and Dashni Sadasavam, all of us who work at Health Equity Solutions, and definitely have been excited to be a part of the State Health Value Strategies Group at Princeton that's funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Let me give you a moment to talk about this origin. Where did this come from? Uh, I've done a lot of public speaking. I've been asked to go into a lot of rooms to either facilitate conversations around health equity or uh, talk to groups about health equity. And the first thing that I realized is if there are 25 people in the room and we're all saying health equity, we all have about 25 definitions of what that means. And so it was really important for me right at the beginning of starting to do training and public speaking activities is to just always start with core definitions. So if anyone's ever heard me do a presentation, I kind of start with what seems like basic arithmetic, one plus one is two. But it starts with like these words that we are using and we're actively putting into our lexicon, but we're we're not defining them. 
we're not always speaking the same language. So when I say health equity, somebody might hear racial equity. When someone else says health equity, they might be talking about geographic equity. There's a lot of different definitions and ways in which people approach the conversation. So we decided that what would be really helpful is instead of continuing to do this on a one-by-one, case-by-case basis, let's put together a guide, something that helps people to start to have the conversation and to have that conversation clearly. The last thing that I want to add here is that this guide is specifically rooted in having conversations about racism and health equity and how those two things come together. It helps individuals who, for real, when you hear racism, immediately start to think about, I'm not a racist. I don't have anything against people of different racial backgrounds and colors. To really start to understand this isn't a conversation about interpersonal racism, whether you or I like each other based on the color or notion of skin, but it's really deeply rooted in a historical cultural context in the United States that has something bigger and broader deeper than that. So it's, to me, the starting opportunity for people to get on the same language to use this. It's the starting opportunity for people to get on the same page using the same language to have some of the most difficult conversations about the impact of racism and health in our country. Terrific. Thank you so much for providing that background. And I really appreciate the distinction of um, interpersonal and sort of the personal experience and how we enter into these conversations. And then that which we need, the conversations we need to have about the institutional structures and institutional and systemic racism. And in particular, that's important for Medicaid programs because the two Medicaid directors we have on the podcast today know that they run massive programs that touch a variety of people's lives and are interwoven into a whole bunch of other systems. And we really do need to have language that allows us to have conversations about the impact of our systems on equitable access to health. And so I'm gonna turn it over to both Jim and Lisa to introduce themselves and then to tell us a little bit about the work that they've been doing and the conversations, more importantly, that they've been having with their staff, with their contractors, with their providers about the opportunities to advance equity and how we need to talk about and have a shared lexicon, as Takesha said, um, as we pursue improvements in health outcomes for everyone. So Jim, I'll turn it over to you first for an introduction and a little background of what you've been up to in Wisconsin. Sure, thank you. Uh, My name is Jim Jones. I'm the Medicaid director in the state of Wisconsin. What have we been up to? A lot of stuff we've been up to. Um, When it comes to equity, um, our governor issued executive orders when he was elected um, that directed his department secretaries and all of his political appointees to work on the issue of equity in our state. Um, We are a a state that has a high level of disparities in our health outcomes on racial and ethnic backgrounds. um, And we, uh, we needed to address that very quickly. So what have I done? Um, Number one, we've made this one of our top two priorities for our whole division. We've said, this is important to us. We're going to spend time on it. And we identified projects immediately that we could work on. The second thing I did was I actually hired an equity policy advisor. I took one of my policy initiatives advisor's positions when it was vacant 
and I hired somebody whose full-time job is to advise me through an equity lens on all the policies and processes within our division. Huge job, but he's a great guy, he's passionate, he has a great background. We also have a vendor that we've hired who's helping us with things like language, with cultural uh, competency, with uh, addressing the class standards, all of those kind of activities that we needed to, to use. The third thing that I did is I actually put together a little kitchen cabinet. Um, I have now a group of trusted advisors um, from across my division and actually across the whole department and even outside my department who have told me that I can reach out to them and we can have pretty frank conversations about how to um, eliminate health, um, dis health equity disparities in our state. So those are the, a few of the things we've done. We got other things, but those are probably the major ones. Terrific. Thanks, Jim. We'll circle back because uh, I'm interested in how you crafted common language among all of those different components. But first, Lisa, I'd like to hear from you on what you've been up to in Kentucky. Thank you. Uh, thank you. I'd really like to thank Naaman for having me here to participate in this very uh, important conversation. And like Jim in Wisconsin, um, I'm Lisa Lee, and I'm the commissioner for the Kentucky Department for Medicaid Services. Um, it, Kentucky has been undertaking uh, very um, various uh, opportunities to, um, to infuse equity across our uh, programs. So in Kentucky, we are an umbrella agency. Uh, Medicaid falls within the Cabinet for Health and Family Services. And shortly after COVID uh, began, you know, there were several um, incidents across the country that sparked several uh, social and, and racial uh, dialogues. One of those, as you know, was Breonna Taylor in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, and so that sparked a big conversation at the, um, the secretary's level. We have a secretary who oversees all of our uh, departments, including Medicaid. And he began these conversations by um, having all the, the department leadership get together. We uh, developed new values, uh, missions, visions, and we developed pillars on which we want to build our new vision. And one of those pillars is definitely equity. And in order to start infusing that throughout the cabinet, we have been having uh, podcasts. We have had training sessions and just listening sessions uh, for individuals to go and, and have these conversations and talk about the importance of equity that we infuse it through all of our programs, not just Medicaid, but our child support or SNAP or TANF. And it's very important for us um, to be able to, to examine our information, our data. One thing we have undertaken is we are bringing all of our medical directors together to look at our data. What does our data tell us? Where are their gaps? So the first thing that we definitely have to do is identify that baseline with which we want to measure how we're progressing with promoting equity um, in our population. We have conducted some very specific outreach to uh, communities that we know have a larger population of minorities. Um, and we have, um, again, uh, engaged all of our employees in these conversations too. For example, we have uh, formed some book groups uh, in which are book clubs in which we uh, read different books that uh, that spark can spark these conversations on uh, on racial and uh, health disparities and, and very very good conversations with with some of those uh, book groups. Terrific, thanks, Lisa. And and I'll open it up to to, to Keisha or to to Lisa or Jim. 
you know, when you're entering into to this work or these conversations, it, it can be difficult to know when, where to start. And it can be difficult to know how to create a safe space and a, a space that gives people grace to find the same language or to, you know, find their way to the issue. Takisha, I know you spoke about the importance of having a shared lexicon, um, but are there specific ways in which you have found Jim, Lisa, or Takisha that, that you really need to agree on language? Do you start with that and say, let's all, before we start this conversation, let's, let's agree on the language we're going to use, or is it better to sort of jump right in, be courageous, create a safe space, and then let that language sort of emerge and sort of make a commitment um, to how you want to talk about these issues and how you want to infuse them into your culture. Do you have any best practice ideas? Takesha, go ahead. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's a both and strategy. I think you first have to create the, the environment um, by acknowledging language um, and the need to be on the same page with language, but also doing what I started calling creating a brave space. Uh, a lot of times you call it things safe space, and I know exactly where that came from, and it's really important, but sometimes safe spaces make people continue with the status quo and be quiet. Brave spaces encourage us to speak up and not blame or shame each other because of what we don't know or what we've said, but to learn together and be courageous in our learning. So it, it, it really allows for the person, and I, I, I'm going to briefly tell this story, though it has nothing to do with language, but it, uh, it appropriately allows the space for the person who came to me when I was in third grade and said, I want to know about your hair and have a courageous conversation, understanding that she was white and I was black and wanting to understand the differences between our hair. Now that's what third graders can do because we don't have like at that point, right? We don't have all of these limitations and barriers we put on ourselves as adults to be cautious. That's bravery. And that's what we need to bring into the space is to take the shields off and say, somebody may ask you something that is an ouch and it's okay that it hurt. And it's okay to acknowledge that it hurt, but it's not okay to blame that person or shame them for that, which they don't know, especially in the process of learning about racism and institutional systematic issues that we have in our country. But if you don't have that atmosphere, you can't get on the same page with language and you can't get on the same page with language if you don't have um, the language to do it. So it's a both and for me, but I think Jim was um, probably had some great things to add there because of what you're doing in Wisconsin. I, I mean, one of the things I just want to point out is I was about to say the exact same words. It's both things. So the, the situations we found ourselves in, the, the murder of George, George Floyd, the, the shooting of Breonna Taylor, the shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin, all of those incidents required us to, to open ourselves up as leaders and show our vulnerability and tell our staff across the whole state of Wisconsin that we were with them that we stand for racial justice in this country, we stand for ethnic justice, and this we are going to engage in a conversation with you, and we want you to know that we got your backs. So we wanted to start off with making people feel brave or safe, maybe both, I'm hoping, and say to them, listen, we know you're going through something. And the first thing we did was we, we told them and their supervisors, if you need to take some time to process these events, if you need that space, you should take that time. And there's no, there's be nothing's gonna happen to you. We want you to take that time. If you wanna have conversations, we're willing to have those conversations, but it's entirely voluntary. 
and we're going to put you in a position where you can contribute what you want to contribute. You can take out of this what you want to take out of this. But we're committed to equity in our in our department and in our program, and therefore we're going to take some actions. And you need to know that we're going to take them to support you as staff, to provide you with the training, to provide you with the information that you need to do your jobs effectively. But the one thing that we are going to do is we are going to eliminate systemic racism in the Medicaid program. And we're going to do it using data and evidence, but we're also going to use you do it based upon what our staff are going to guide us to do. And that includes people who are working in our clerical offices. That means people who are income maintenance eligibility workers. That means it's policy analysts and doctors and lawyers and all the other millions of people, not millions, it's not millions, believe me, um, the thousands of people that we have working with us. Um, and it includes our contractors and it includes our counties that we have contracts with. It includes everyone. And we're gonna be very strong and very committed to this goal of eliminating this. I just wanna point out like, as, as she was talking, the emphasis, because language is not just about words. It's about the passion and the, and the emphasis in what you're saying. It. And what Jim has said is we're going to do this and we're not afraid to call out systemic racism. Like the, those two things together, I do think creates a brave, safe space. We can call it that. Um, and allows for the words, the vocabulary to get all in the same place and allows for people to misuse them and say, oh, wait, I can be corrected by my colleague because we're all on the same page to get this done. Um, so we don't have people who are bystanders to misuse language or inappropriate language, but people are rather upstanders because they know the environment has been created, that this is our collective goal. I love it. And, and I can use the people that I have around me who are more knowledgeable about this in the same way that I have more people who are more knowledgeable about everything in the Medicaid program. And I can go to them and ask them, well, how should I address this? What are the words that I should use? What are the things that are, I'm not looking to be, what is it, inoffensive? I'm not, I don't want to be offensive to people, but at the same time, I'm not afraid. And I want people to know how, how we're, how we're going to do things. I just need you to help me say those things in a way that are going to reach um, our employees, our, our contractors, everybody that's uh, impacted by the Medicaid program. One of the things I really appreciate the conversation so far, but I am struck that, you know, last summer at this time and, and of course, prior to that, but last summer was the the um, the murder of George Floyd, uh, the killing of Breonna Taylor and, and Jacob Blake and a, a real rise in our in our collective consciousness about it and a national movement. I've heard you say part of the ways you sustained that commitment to end conversation is by, Lisa, you mentioned there's, it's a pillar now in your strategic plan. Jim, you've mentioned you've hired staff in, in some ways to help you stay accountable, right? Uh, I, I have, I remember when I was a Medicaid director, I mean, the, the world just overwhelms you on a daily basis. And even with your greatest desires, you sometimes don't always get to prioritize the things that are important to you. So you, you need staff and others to hold you accountable. But how have you found either sharing language or including language um, or these other mechanisms, how have they helped you sustain the focus beyond just the, the sort of movement or the moment that um, reminds us all of the, of the criticality of this work and of its deep, deep structures within our country? How have you sustained the work and what role has sort of 
the language or an agreement upon how you're going to talk about the issues, um, how's that played out? So I can start. Um, we definitely think that, you know, leadership is key. And we have uh, a leader in Kentucky at, at the cabinet level and even in our governor um, who wants to definitely focus on, on and promote health equity across the population, across all of our population that we serve. And we do serve 1.6 million individuals in Kentucky right now in our Medicaid program. But I think definitely leading by example. Um, and we, you know, we, we have open and honest communication uh, throughout the week. And, and our secretary encourage, encourages the departments to continue to support each other and our employees and all of our efforts designed to increase awareness of social and racial injustice. And what he asks us to be part of the solution. And one way that we are definitely going to keep this uh, going in the future is we have created a technical technical advisory committee specifically focused on diversity and inclusion, health equity that reports up to the Medicaid advisory committee. Um, so, in addition to that, some of our departments, you know, um, have um, hired individuals specifically to address uh, the racial and ethnic uh, disparities in our health delivery system. So I think having that uh, technical advisory committee and those individuals specifically focused to address these issues and um, highlight and bring to, to the forefront any gaps that we find is definitely key to sustaining um, the work with, with that we're doing around uh, health equity. And I'm in the same boat. I have a governor and a secretary who are 100% supportive of this and pushing to make sure that these things are happening. At the same time, it meant that we had to sort of deprioritize a couple of projects and make sure that we had the space to do this. We can't just keep on adding stuff on top of, of more and more and more work. That's not going to make, one, it's not going to work. And number two, it's not going to make anybody feel very positive about these projects. So how do we keep it in focus? One, that equity advisor putting a lens on everything we do really helps. Um, reaching out and having an office of health equity um, in the secretary's office is a, is a huge boon to us as well. Um, so those are the kind of things that are really helping us stay focused. And part of it is also just that we all have a commitment now. And it's 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 a very, honestly, kind of an emotional, vulnerable thing that we're all going through. Um, and it's the one my one thing that I'm trying to make sure doesn't happen is we don't lose momentum. We can't lose momentum. We have to keep going. We have to have a strategy. We have to adjust it as we learn new things. And one of the things I, I appreciate, Takesha, I really love the documents that you put together because they're giving me, me another insight into new ways of expressing our goals, expressing our, our passion for making sure that things work differently. The, second, the third thing I'd tell you is that we're also trying to take a little bit of emotion out of it. We're actually trying to be very data-driven. We're really um, embracing the justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, the JEDI principles, and really using that as our guidebook. So we're focused on identifying um, disparities in our health outcomes, regardless of the reason. Part of our problem is data. We're trying to work on our data first, but after once we've got that in place, we feel like we can really focus on those things that are geographic, racial, honestly, gender identity, all of the things that make us different from one another um, that, that could re resu uh, result in um, a disparity in your health outcome and in your, the treatment that you receive from our healthcare workforce. Takesha, do you have any tips around how to sustain this work within um, a very busy 
state agency or uh, state administration? Yeah, so I, it's got to be core and foundational. Um, it has to be leadership all the way throughout, and it can't be seen as a plus or like an additional piece. It has to be seen as fundamental to the approach and the way that the work is going to be done. That's how we get sustained to sustain energy, sustain action. It's how we move past the emotion that comes inevitably with talking about and realizing the depths with which we have a problematic system. And sometimes people, that emotion is overwhelmed. Like, wait a minute. It's like, I don't, there's so much, I don't know where to begin. And the point is you have to begin. And once you have, you've got to keep going. I think about it um, kind of like the nursery rhyme, you know, Jack and Jill went up the hill. It wasn't as if they were going down, right? Downhill is like, you're going to go fast and you're going to end at some point, but you're moving uphill when we're talking about systemic racism, because it is what is status quo. It is what's natural to us. So from my perspective, I, I get on the same page about language, but then you have to move that into action. And that's what we really appreciate about why we did the guide the way we did. It's like, we're not just going to give you a term and define it, but let's look at ways you can actually put this into action. And, and that'll help sustain. I think one of the things that I've been really struck by is I think we're, I think we're beyond a moment. And I'm super heartbroken that it took all of the lives that were senselessly taken for us to get there. But there's a reckoning that's happening for all of us to understand we can't go back to what normal was because I know we're not talking about the pandemic, but all of these things happened during the pandemic. So it gives us this clear beginning, right? We can't go back to what was before the pandemic. We have to move into the new now and the new normal. And that is being unapologetic, being clear, and being um, forceful in, in our movement and our action towards eradicating systemic racism and doing that in ways that are not harmful to people, because no one should be harmed in this. There might be some emotional trauma because we're all, we all have that, but no one should be harmed in this process. But to me, that's what sustaining looks like. Starting it, getting it moving, keeping it going. And it's foundational and core to what's being done, not an additional. And I'm totally stealing Jedi. It's going on a t-shirt, new meaning. Thanks, Jim Jones. We even have a Jedi council. You all need t-shirts like and, and swag, like just do it. I love it. And thank you so much, Takesha. And, and I'm reminded to the point that you were just making, I think one of the things that was um, really important to the administration that I served under in Colorado was person-centeredness, right? Which we know is a core component, mostly defined as providing services to individuals with disabilities or long-term care needs. But we wanted to shake that out to make the whole department person-centered. So we actually worked with our state HR system and added 5% of everyone's performance evaluation was the degree to which they embraced person-centeredness. As you might imagine, our finance department or others, a little bit of stretching had to be done by their managers and their leaders to help see. But I remember I had one of my teams they went to one of our county social services offices for a, a field trip to just engage with members as they were um, navigating the benefits application process and others. And that was their person-centered activity that they then all reflected on as part of their performance evaluation. But I just wanted to think about other ways you can embed it into the systemic ways you're thinking about how you do your work. And 
we, we got that 5% of our performance evaluations dedicated to person-centeredness, um, which took like two years, but we were eventually successful in doing so. Well, it just reminds me of the story of, the, the, is it a JFK and NASA? Um, I think that's the right one, where he turned to the custodian and asked, what do you do here? And he says, I help get people to the, to the moon. And so fundamentally, um, if, if, and I imagine, particularly in state agencies, it's easy to be a cog in the wheel and not see the whole wheel. And the, the bottom line is you really have to understand, everybody has to understand that they're a part of a, of a, a force in movement. And this is where you're going. This is the direction. So I'm a huge proponent, because I know we're talking about language, but I'm a huge proponent of it being baked into performance evaluation. Definitely, what is your role and responsibility and how are we holding you accountable to that for everyone? Terrific. Well, I know we're getting to the end of our time, uh, although I, I would happily participate in this conversation for many more hours. I wanted to just ask maybe each of you to give some thought or advice to maybe one of the Medicaid leaders that's listening to this podcast on, on where they could begin, right? If maybe they don't have a governor who has made uh, such a commitment or they feel like a cog in the wheel and they, they don't necessarily see or feel like they have jurisdiction over moving that whole wheel, you know, where might they begin um, from whatever position they're in is it starting with, let's open up ourselves to conversation about the language we're using to describe the work we're doing? Or is it something else? But where would you give advice to uh, folks who are interested in advancing these conversations at their agency, um, but may not quite know where to start? So um, I think it definitely, you know, you have to lead by example. You really have to have those hard conversations and you have to have an expectation and it's just like Jim uh, said, we will do this. We are committed to this. And I think carving out time uh, for, for those conversations, definitely making it a priority. Um, and, and you have to allow staff time to participate in conversations and group learning sessions on work time. You can't just say you have to come in and you have to work and here's your, your 37 and a half hours and you have to be focused on Medicaid uh, policy the whole time, you have to have those conversations to allow them to be human and to express um, their, their selves. And in addition, when we talk about race and, and ethnicity and, and health uh, equity in our department, we also talk, talk about trauma and resilience because um, some, of the, you know, some of the events that have unfolded um, are not only uh, are uh, steeped in systemic racism, they've also uh, created trauma and not only for the population we serve, but our employees as well. So I think that flexibility and that focus on your employee and making sure that we give them the tools they need to be successful and to be inclusive um, in, in their own right. But we are a human service organization. So we are inherently focused on what is good for those individuals that we serve. So again, I think it's just definitely leading by example and carving out those time um, that allows individuals to, to participate in activities that are gonna, um, you know, like we talked about before, it's just gonna solidify that thought and that process and it becomes an everyday thing then rather than, than an afterthought or something that, that is added on to. It's just something that we need to do. And I, I think it's you know, kind of sad and disheartening that we have to have these conversations to tell people, you know, how to, how to implement uh, equity within our programs and, 
and why it is so important. But uh, here we are, and again, just a commitment to do that. Yeah, and I I just say, I've never met a Medicaid director who didn't want the people of their state to be healthier, didn't want the members of their program to be served and to live better lives. Um, doesn't matter if you're in a red state, a blue state, a purple state, big state, small state, doesn't matter. Everybody wants things to be better. This is another aspect of your job. Another aspect of your job is identifying those additional things um, in people's lives, including their gender identity, including their racial identity, their ethnic identity, whatever identity, their rural urban identity that results in a health disparities. That's now your job. Your job is to identify it and address it. And part of the way that you do that is you rally the troops. You look at the world around you and say, listen, we aren't gonna stand for this. We all in this program want the same thing. We want people to live healthy, better lives. And that's what we wanna do. So this is one part of everything that we need to do every single day. And Gretchen, I can't tell you how much uh, the person-centricness completely resonates with me. It's one of our core values. It's one of the things we look at when we're evaluating employees. Um, it's something we learn from our long-term care system when we're trying to address across the entire spectrum, including acute and primary care. And we expect that from our healthcare workforce. We expect that from the people who serve our members, no matter where they are. And, uh, you know, honestly, equity is just one piece of that person-centeredness. Yeah, and I think all I could add is start. I mean, it's a simple word, but start. I think it's just important um, to, to get in there, begin the work, learn what you don't know, question everything and figure it out. It's just really important. And I love this. This is just one part of your job. It's, it's a core part of what we need to do as a society. It's our hope that the language guide kind of gives people the space to just jumpstart it. If this is the jumpstart, that's great. Keep it going. Um, but just don't be unafraid. Just get in there. Terrific. Thank you all very much. I'm going to now turn it over to Mark Larson from the Center for Health Strategies to uh, give us his, his perspective on the conversation we've had. Mark? Gretchen, thank you. And Lisa, Jim, and Takesha, thank you for a really rich conversation. I, I have two reflections that come from it. I'm, I'm thinking about People often talk about the role that leaders play. And I'll be clear that when we talk about leaders, we don't just mean Medicaid directors. We mean anybody who has the chance to lead in an organization, uh, the role that they play in establishing culture and that they do it in two ways. One is that they, they set cultural expectations. And uh, Lisa and Jim, you started with that in terms of the using language to add to your values, to your mission um, and to your visions. Uh, but the second important piece that leaders play in, in culture is that they activate culture. And it, I was struck by the, the resonance of that with the notion of brave space. Uh, and Jim, to your comment about the importance of being willing to be vulnerable, those kind of things that say, hey, beyond the words, uh, Takesha, you pointed out the importance of passion, uh, the ability to activate equity into our culture, not just by uh, stay in stuff, but by really giving people permission to, to start, Takesha, to your point, that it, I'm appreciative of the role that language, but also the, the, the human reality behind the language brings to the importance of uh, creating equity in our organizational cultures. And then 
Takesha, I was reading the guide and I was struck by the, the term anti-racism, uh, which I, I read to mean that sort of active effort to dismantle racism. And it made me reflect in this conversation on the many ways that you all talked about creating structures. If we have historic structures and processes that created and support racism, it, I'm, I was struck by the efforts that you have given to creating structures to be anti-racist because of the active effort involved. And that seemed to come up often in terms of the the importance of creating accountability, uh, but also action that you can sustain over the course of time, all driven by the clarity of the language, uh, but also backed up again by the, the clarity of the leadership voice um, and behavior behind it. So I'm really grateful uh, for the conversation. And I, I think it's something that Medicaid leaders across the country can really draw a lot from. So thank you to all three of you. Yes, thanks so much. I hope that everyone listening found it valuable. Please subscribe to these podcasts, Medicaid Leadership Exchange, on the Apple Podcast Store, or keep an eye out for future podcasts posted to the NAMD and CHCS websites. Thanks so much.